Um, and then, so people were going to start, Gaines is going to say, like, literally a line. And then, um, and I would ask people to think in the next, like, 20 seconds if they want to start, if they want to be people who speak first, and then they should be at the table. choosing to go by a different name, say um, T. Kerr, and then speak from there. Um, so, uh, there we go. I'm Gaines, um, and I just wanted to say that it feels um, particularly good or uncomplicated for um, to be doing uh, a sort of an archive of brand in the context of the New York Public Library and the Transoil History Project, just because any uh, I mean, with any person, you know, obviously belonging to a group, an identity category, um, one discipline as an artist can feel stifling. But I think that Bryn uh, was particularly attached um, to the idea of being a New Yorker. Um, and I think that it's great to have her uh, memories be situated in the context of the New York Public Library and the public domain of New York City. Um, I know that she told me uh, when she moved here, within a month she was in the New York Times twice. Um, <laughs> once as part of uh, some, you know, kind of casting call to be in a photo shoot with Cindy Lauper, um, and then once as part of doing Purim Spiel um, with the Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. Um, and she thought that that meant that she was supposed to be here um, and was going to be recognized in this city for the person who she was. So I just really appreciate that she's being remembered primarily as a New Yorker. Great. I want people to know that there can be silence. And to kind of lower the stakes a bit, I'm going to ask some questions, and people can just come up and answer those low-stakes questions. Um, for people who have had the chance to live with Bryn in New York, um, does anybody have a have a idea of like the food she liked to eat in New York? This is like a really short anecdote, but I just thought it was really cute and funny. Um, so a friend of mine is a dance and aerobics instructor. And he had you know, said, like, come to my class. You could, it, it was at this fancy studio. And he said, come to my class. You can come for free. You can bring a friend. 
And so I somehow managed to convince Bryn to do it. <laughs> and <laughs> then the day of, um, I met with her outside the studio and she was wearing just like a really pretty dress and had a tiny purse with her. So there was like clearly no change of clothes. And I was like, okay, um, what's going on? And she's like, well, I thought about it on the train ride and I just like, or I suppose before the train ride and I decided there was absolutely no way I was actually doing this. So I'm gonna go to a diner that I saw around the corner and I'm gonna eat a cheeseburger as you do the class. And then we can meet back up afterwards and hang out and go shopping. And that's exactly what we did. <laughs> Katie, what I liked about that story is also the, um, the idea of uh, Bryn making her own decisions even after plans were made. Um, and I think one memory that I have is, so I knew Bryn more so online before I knew her in person. And the first time I met her, she was wearing, uh, I'm wearing a, a version of the uh, Silence Equals Death t-shirt and the first time I saw Bryn in person she was wearing a halter top version of this shirt and um, I tried to bond with her about that shirt and she's like oh don't bother with that we have other things to talk about and it just um, I liked that uh, you didn't have to it was a bit of a good uncompromising um, and uh, I felt very uncomfortable around Bryn I haven't been able to make sense out of, um, uh, which brings up her tarot card stuff. Um, and I have a tarot card story, but does anybody else have one before I say mine? Yeah. Um, but I wanted to actually go back to the food because that did bring up a memory. Um, I think. I've been trying to think about the first time that I met Bryn, and I knew that I had seen her around. <laughs> um, and I knew of her for a long time before I met her in person, and I think the first time I met her was at that pizza shop in Williamsburg um, on Bedford that has the vegan pizza, and I was with Jean, and we were going to Hate Queen, and we were meeting up there for pizza before. And um, so I, she must, I mean, everyone who lives in Europe likes pizza, right? But um, yes, I'm uh, pretty sure that was the first time I officially met her. Um, Bryn, this is, I don't, I don't know how I'm gonna tell this story actually. <laughs> uh, Bryn read my tarot cards, I think a few times, but one before I went on a Okay, keep the date. <laughs> and with someone who, um, a few of us in the room have dated. Um, and uh, uh, the, um, I remember her pulling the cards, and I was I was really depressed at the time. I had this like kind of whirlwind affair, and I was. Uh, really heartbroken and so I was looking, I needed something that was gonna distract me and so like, it's always in those moments where you like grasp for anything and like, I believe in tarot and, and witchcraft anyway, but like I was like really grasping onto it at that moment. I was like wearing like rose quartz in my bra all the time. <laughs> and um, so she did this reading and uh, they, before the date and said, these, all these, 
even though the cards, I don't remember what the cards were exactly, they were like complicated and could have been read in any number of ways as you would know that goes. And she said that um, it was going to be a really nice relationship that I would have with this person, that there was gonna be some kind of promise kept, that this person and I were gonna have a, um, there was a promise for the future. And I believe that has rang true. This person is still in my life and a friend of mine. And so um, it was a sweet, a sweet message that I needed at that moment in time. Where, where did she do it? That's a good question. I think it was at my house. I had had a uh, circle for the equinox, I believe. And she brought her tarot cards. Do you remember what she was wearing? I don't remember what she was wearing that day. Um, but I do remember that, that circle. It must have been the spring equinox because I do remember that we planted, we sprouted seeds as part of a ritual. And um, weeks later, uh, Bryn sent me a photo of the sprout and mm. my seed didn't grow. Mm. I mean, I um, <laughs> had the opposite of a green thumb, it seems mm. really sad. It really is something I struggle with, but um, mm. her seed sprouted. Was it Yara? You know, I don't remember what it was, but it could have been, yeah. Absolutely. And I want us to get into the habit of saying our names when we oh. speak. Um, this is Zach. The last conversation I had with Bryn was she was reading my cards, um, but from a playing deck of cards on a train to West Virginia. And she had posted on Facebook, first five people to comment, I'll read your cards. And um, I commented, and so I have the Facebook message in its entirety. I don't know if yeah. there's space to read it entire. Okay. Um, so it's long. Um, and so the prompting question was I was entering my Saturn return. Zachary, playing card reading, this is a pretty in-depth reading for a playing card thing. I drew one card for each planet to answer the question, what is happening in my Saturn return? First card, Sun, the Nine of Diamonds. Nine of Diamonds is usually about opulence, especially where money is concerned. Sometimes it has an aspect of, quote, I, a, a deal too good to be true. But since you have the happy sun shining on it, know that your Saturn return may disrupt any number of things, but your money situation will be okay. The Moon, Nine of Hearts. Nine of Hearts is a similar to Nine of Diamonds, except it is about being surrounded by love and happiness. The only thing to be wary of in this card is that it's in the moon position, the moon famously a symbol of inconsistency. So you will experience a real excess of overflowing love, but it may stray and come back like the tides, if you will. Asterisk, another important thing to note here is that in many traditions, the nine of diamonds is the wish card. So my advice to you, whenever the moon is full, make a wish. She will be kind to you then. Last night's full moon was in Aquarius both Bryn and my sign. Mm. Mercury, six of spades. The six of spades is a nasty little card, but it can be mitigated. 
It's a good kind of watch out warning thing, meaning disaster can be averted if you are aware and wary. Mercury rules change and communication, so take care during the return to be very careful, very clear with your words, very intentional, and plan well for a major life transitions. Do your due diligence before, any, before you sign anything. Mars, five, five of hearts, this card is in some traditions called the happy home, the happy bed, or sometimes the whore's bed, smiley face. Take that as you will. <laughs> It is good news. It means many battles you face will come to a happy end, and there awaits you a lot of romantic fun, especially with Mars-type personalities. Play safe, but have lots of fun. Venus, King of Clubs. This is kind of an odd pairing, the King of Clubs bringing out the more luxurious side of Venus. Look for Tauruses as romantic partners, maybe. Or another thing my intuition is telling me is that Saturn Return will make you becoming the hard worker that brings your own luxury. It is about, perhaps, the transition from looking for a daddy to being a daddy. <laughs> or having being one at the same time, you know? <laughs> Jupiter, ten of clubs. Once again, this is about doing the work. Jupiter is a benevolent planet, and it, is a bless and it blesses you are putting a lot of time and energy into what is important to you, which is to say, the field is fertile, it is up to you to plow it and make lots of beautiful things grow. And finally, drumroll, Saturn, the Jack of Hearts. Zachary, many people are deeply changed by their Saturn return, but speaking Aquarius to Aquarius here, I can say that you possess a certain quality, a very sweet charm and charisma, and that card is saying that that will never go away. Overall, this is very, this is very much a spread about growing up, or whatever that means, and moving into the next phase of your life. Hard work, passion, and commitment will be required, but you have so much strength and love and support around you to uh, doula through this transition. Someone once said to me, it is good advice to be the daddy you want. <laughs> and while I think there is an element of this here, it's also about keeping that essential part of you that is sweet and hopeful, even as you enter this big change in the second chapter of your life. Hope you enjoyed that, or were at least marginally entertained. XOB. This is Sarah. So I met Bryn in 2012 through Tom Leger, and I really didn't pay much attention to her. And then Tom was trying to encourage her to apply to the Lambda Literary Retreat. And so she applied to my group, and when I read her, Submission, it was incredibly well written and very smart. And I was really excited to work with her. And I remember I saw her at, in an audience after that. And it was the first time I actually really noticed her. And I just went up to her and told her how great her work was. And she really honestly was surprised. I mean, she was honestly moved. Um, you know, on one hand, she knew she was really smart. But on another hand, she didn't know. And that's the thing, that insecurity. I mean, I'm very annoyed with Bryn right now. Um, you know, I think, I, f I feel like, you know, her taking her own life was really stupid. And I think that's just the word I feel about it. And I've been having a lot of feelings about it. But anyway, just to say that my initial relationship to her was one of promise, that she had promise. And she came to the group, and she was an excellent person in the group. Um, it was in um, L.A. She was very supportive of other people. She was very smart. 
She read other people's work with great heart, but also with reality. And I was talking to her and telling her that I thought she would make a very good teacher. Um, and I also thought she should be a columnist <laughs> because that was the kind of writing she was doing. And we talked a lot about her future and throughout our whole relationship, a lot of it was about her future. Like um, I was there when she met Gaines, when he came to the workshop and then she tried to go back to CUNY and I was her supervisor there. And even when she was hospitalized uh, at NYU, we talked about her future. Um, anyway, I'm just, um, you know, annoyed with her right now. Um, this is Diana, and I actually, building on something Sarah said about Bryn being smart, kind of smarter than everyone else. So I met her when our friend Cheryl Burke was sick, so what year was that, like 2011? Yeah. So I was teaching at Brooklyn College at the time, and um, I met Bryn. We were doing a, a fundraiser for Cheryl's medical bills, and um, Bryn's. And so it was like a, a, a talent show, and the talent that Bryn was demonstrating was making a Snooky poof <laughs> <laughs> in Jessica Howell's hair. <laughs> She was um, teasing Jessica's hair, and uh, it was funny because, you know, was, okay, so I was teaching gender studies at Brooklyn College, and Bryn was a student, not of mine, she was just a student there, and, but, and she kept doing this thing where she kept deferring to me because I was the, like, professor, but she clearly was smarter than me, like, I would, it was obvious from our conversation, she was, you know, quoting all, she was quoting theory I had been too lazy to read and didn't care that much about, and uh, was just, just like so on top of everything. But was, but everything that she was saying, it, it was this self-esteem thing where she just kept wanting to defer to this, the person in the position of authority, even though I had no more knowledge than her. Um, and I was also struck by her kindness. She's quick. She's. You know, Britt, of course, was so quick, and, and she was just quick and mean, and the mean was always so smart. <laughs> I mean, I love that. Um, but uh, it was just this sort of, she, she was just sort of being very quietly smart that night, and not, um, not performing, really just sort of uh, kindly helping raise money for, for sure. And then later, year, I mean, so a couple years later, actually, it was, there was another time when I remember Bryn doing this. It was, it was um, during Imogen Vinnie's book launch in 2013 at QEJ. And we were talking about fully functional cabaret, which maybe was about to happen or hadn't happened yet. Is that, yeah. And she had this, she sort of had this, um, really comprehensive knowledge of like performance art and she was she was talking about how excited she was to be part of it but was also at the same time worried that it would be like sort of a farce in some way but I was really struck by how much she knew about what she was doing and knew the whole history of the type of theater that she wanted to engage in.
friend in the earlier mid-2000s. She was living off of Bushwick Avenue across from the big high school. And she was roommates with my high school girlfriend, Anna. Mm -hmm. And the night that I was just over there hanging out with Anna, I met Bryn and Noga was over and we played Scrabble. And I spent, I think, most of my friendship with Bryn in houses playing games, um, playing Scrabble and sometimes playing cards. And I didn't necessarily know her as a writer and a performer until later than that. And so I, I liked that we always spent a lot of time in the house together. So, um, and when she was at Interfaith, after one of the times that she um, tried to commit suicide, we also spent a lot of time there just playing um, Scrabble and playing cards. And I think there was sort of a continuity in those, in those things between us. Um, the story that I wanted to tell about her was also about her being a student and her kind of, she was so voraciously smart, but she also, I think, really wanted to finish her college degree and was very frustrated by the kind of deferrals of that process happening over and over again, different kind of semesters coming to an end and she would begin really excited and something would sort of get in the way. And she wanted to apply to Smith to be an Ada Comstock scholar, which is when you go after your 24 sort of a non-traditional age student, which is a silly kind of thing. It was before any of the um, kind of historically women's colleges allowed trans women, which just happened, I guess, last year, 2015. And I think this was probably in the late 2000s. And she asked if I would write a letter of recommendation for her because she couldn't really get around the fact that um, she was a trans woman applying to a school that didn't allow trans women. So she wanted me to address it in the letter and she wanted to account for the fact that she had bad grades on her transcript and she had lapses of time and mm -hmm. she wanted, um, she, we sort of like co-wrote this letter to do this, what I kind of felt like was her activism and movement building and um, these kind of small ways with her own life and she of course had to experience the frustration of being rejected in a singular way as opposed to in a, in a big way. Um, and Gaines reminded me this morning that, um, do you want to tell it? Sure. Um, yeah, this is Gaines again. Um, well, I just actually, I just remembered more of the story, which is that at some point in applying to colleges, once she, because she had been to several different colleges in different cities, um, she needed her high school transcripts, and she, actually it was for beauty school that she first, and this was must have been in like, somewhere like 2003, 2004, um, she needed her high school transcripts, and um, they re wouldn't change the name and gender on her high school transcripts. Um, and so she had, she like downloaded a very early version, of, she like pirated a very early version of Photoshop onto her computer and Photoshopped her high school transcripts, not any of the grades, which were all like A's and, you know, honors courses and college courses, um, but the, just the name and gender on the transcript and like reprinted it out on pink paper or you know, whatever to make it look official to go to beauty school to get her beautician's license. And then you know, proceeded to use that afterwards in different contexts um, to apply to colleges. But then at some point she decided that she should actually change it, also knowing that legally she had the right to update the information. And she started looking into it and hit a wall when she realized that the superintendent of the uh, high school county system that she had been to had been her middle school gym teacher. 
Um, and it was just this, it was sort of, it was just like kind of thrown in her face, the kind of Freudian and, you know, just the friction of having to um, sort of legally battle this person who had been her high school gym teacher and then kind of, which is just such a site of homophobia and transphobia. Um, and also her mother was a, was a teacher in the school system, so I think it, um, it just seemed like another roadblock for her. Um, but she, you know, was incredibly ingenious, always with that like early version of Photoshop and other design uh, product projects that she undertook. Um, yeah. And then when she went, and then with the application for Smith. Oh student, yeah, and she also told me that right after apparently she picked up the letter of recommendation from Jean, she just missed. She tried to mail it by five o'clock to get it postmarked. Um, you know, the day it was supposed to be postmarked by and, you know, got there just two minutes late or whatever, couldn't get it postmarked that day, so she hopped on a Greyhound to Northampton to physically hand deliver the application packet into whatever box it needed to be in by end of business that day. And um, she was kind of like a little, like I think embarrassed at having missed the mailing deadline and definitely knew people in Northampton and could have picked up the phone and found someone to stay with but ended up sleeping at the Greyhound station and coming back on the first bus the next morning to New York and not really telling anyone that she had done that. Right. Hi, I'm Joss, and Sarah's comment um, brought up some of my memories of Bryn because I met Bryn at Lambda that year. I was in the fiction workshop, and she was in the nonfiction workshop, and I arrived at Lambda kind of in that quasi-state where you want to transition, but you don't know if you should. And I was, it was a subject that I had not even really vocalized to not even some of my closest friends from St. Louis. And so I get to Lambda, and Brent is one of the first people I meet when we get to the campus. And I remember she was um, talking to some people in the courtyard, bombing cigarettes, um, handing out lights, giving people cigarettes, you know, just that normal thing. And immediately I just recognized she was the center of attention and she stayed the center of attention the rest of the week we were there. I, that's not even an exaggeration. She really was kind of the star of that workshop. There were a lot of brilliant people that year, but she really was at the top echelon of that, of that, um, that fellowship class. And everyone there recognized it. We all knew it. Um, and we all respected her immensely because of it. Because um, just the way in which Sarah had said, she was, so, she was so smart, but she was so gracious with her own insight of how writing can really change the narrative of our lives as queer and trans people. And she was very, very helpful with, um, I know the people in her workshop. Um, and one of those first nights that we kind of all hung out um, after you know orientation or maybe after maybe that first class we were hanging out um, and again she's out there smoking a cigarette and I just kind of sat next to her because again I was so intrigued by her like just so just immediately like attracted to her because she had such a confidence about her and such just a just this energy that I can, can't even truly to this day fully describe, but so I sat next to her and we're talking and 
um, in kind of Bryn, Bryn's way, she just kind of casually, you know, mentions her antiretrovirals just so casually, and I just so like in awe of that because it's a it's something that I recognize with my trans sisters who are HIV positive that that casualness is a source of strength I think for some of us um, and she she, she kind of mentioned that and she kind of also kind of was talking about um, she was talking about how combinations of antiretrovirals and her hormones um, and kind of what how that produces certain effects with her and. I hadn't even mentioned anything, and she turns to me and she looks at me and she says, "Oh, and when you start hormones, you will, you'll understand what I'm talking about." And just so again, so casually, and I just like kind of laughed. I'm like, "Okay, she just clocked me. That's great." But it was kind of a shock, but also kind of relief because I was like, "She sees me. She just truly, like, honestly saw me that night, even though that may have been maybe our second conversation." Of the of that first of that first couple days, and that's kind of where I felt okay. I feel safe around this person. I feel seen by this person. I feel acknowledged around this person, and I was very jealous of her cohorts because uh, I wanted to be I I wanted to be in that class simply so I could sit next to her and like listen to her. Um, but I I felt very um, honored that um, she um, that she and I kept in contact. And I would, in another interesting Bryn story is that I discovered Bryn well before Lambda um, through the Hussy, and I didn't know who the Hussy was at the time. But I, you know, traversing trans women um, online um, literature and social spaces, you know, I came across the Hussy. I was like, oh my god, who is this bitch? She's amazing. Like this writing is so on point and so funny. And again, in casual conversation during Lambda, she's like, oh, I've been stalking you for a while. I don't know if you know that. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, um, I'm the hussy. I was like, and my jaw dropped. I was like, you're the hussy. Yeah. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So again, more revelations that week. And um, maybe just the last couple of things I would like to say about her is that after we um, left Lambda that week, um, I, I reached out to her. Like, I think maybe a couple, like, maybe that day I got back to St. Louis, and I said, I just sent her a message, I'm like, you know, thank you for being, you know, so nice, and you know, I really hope we get to, you know, you know, stay in contact, I would love to, like, um, read more of your stuff, you know, and I would feel really honored if you would read some of my stuff, and um, she was very, she, she was always receptive if I wanted her to look at something, she would read it, she would give me comments, and um, I would tell her every time I talked to her, I'm like, you know, you inspire me, and I think the first couple times I told her that, I think I think someone else in the room had said it kind of shocked her. But I, I really feel that last couple times I, I talked to her and I really like told her, like, you are an amazing writer. I, you need to keep writing because what you have to say is important and the work that you're doing is inspiring me. And I feel like the last time I told her that, I feel like she truly believed it. I feel like she truly believed it. Um, and so... And I'm coming from this perspective of someone who's not from New York and who didn't um, get to have the privilege of seeing her on a, on a very communal basis um, and came through Bryn as an artist and as another trans woman. Trans woman. Um, but another um, trans um, writer that was there that week that, has, that knew, knew Bryn had told me that after her passing that um, 
Bryn has left her lineage and her legacy all over, all over the country. And that was something that was reassuring for me that she did leave a legacy and a lineage that, um, that is important. And yeah. This is Sarah again. Um, I think, you know, Bryn would have these spurts of complete follow through and then she would crash. You know, and so like she told, she asked if she could read some of my plays, and then I had a play that she decided that she wanted to turn it into a radio play, and she was so persuasive that she was going to do it, and I said sure. So I gave her the play, and then she was like, "Oh, we need to raise money to buy the equipment." So I was like, "Okay." So we we had we decided that we would do a tarot card fundraiser at Trans Central Station. So we did this thing where for hours and hours and hours we were both reading tarot cards. I think I read 50 people's tarot cards. Mm -hmm. And Katie, you were taking the, you were at the behind the bar, right? Mm -hmm. And she raised all this money and then she never did it. But every few weeks or months she'd send me a little message saying, I have the money in a bank account, I have the money in a bank account, but she never did it. And one time mm -hmm. she took a picture of having spread out the script all over the table and she um, texted me the picture. Anyway, when she, when she died, we needed money to do the um, cremation. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, there's that money. I'm so stupid, you know? And I remember, I think I either asked Elizabeth or Katie, I'm not sure who I talked to about it. I was like, where is that money? And they're like, I don't think that money's there. <laughs> and I was like, oh. And like the whole time I had thought that this was gonna happen and she had just spent the money. She bought audio equipment with it, oh. I remember that. Um, I remember at, at Lambda when um, I arrived on the Friday because I had also gotten to know her through the Hussy and we had developed this rapport with each other and um, I was the first time we met was at, Lam at the Lambda Literary Retreat um, that same week. I came at the end of it and this, pretty much as soon as I arrived she had, you know, we got there, I got there, ran into Che Gossett, Che Gossett was like, oh I'll bring you to everybody. And then she has Che take a picture of the two of us. And then she goes, there's someone you must meet. This little trans feminine number in a Dianbound Furstenberg pantsuit. Um, and she like brings me over to Joss and um, introduces us. Um, and I just remember, I mean, I know that for Bryn, it was, um, he, there are a lot of levels that being in, in community with other trans women was hard just in terms of being, you know, any fellowship of women and um, all the ways that trans women are, are uh, societally encouraged to isolate from each other. Um, and she was like susceptible to all those pressures, but at the same time she found, she had, took such great joy from the moments where she was able to develop really um, these just really deep connections with other um, girls who she felt kinship with and I remember that being so clear from her relationship with Joss and also um, her practice through um, cutting hair and how she quickly became kind of to her chagrin but she sort of loved it at the same time the like trans girls first haircut mm -hmm. station mm -hmm. um, where she you know normally would not brook that kind of um, like beauty advice or other um, sort of mentorship position, but uh, she was really happy to share in that kind of hairdresser's um, chair relationship. 
those moments with trans women and making them feel beautiful. This is Zach again, um, sort of to touch on um, what was sort of said earlier just about Bryn being like, she should have been, like what Sarah said about how she should have been a teacher. Um, I met Bryn when I was 22, I think. We were in a performance of Between Two Worlds, um, which was a queer community theater project and um, of, where, of where I met many, many folks who are very dear friends of mine today. And a lot of what Joss was saying of just like, I just was very, I just looked up to her immensely and was drawn to her so immensely by this power and, um, but just such a calm, quiet, but such a strong power. And in the show, she wrote this monologue that um, I, I don't remember the text or could, I was looking for the text um, for today, but couldn't find it, but just such power and such like otherworldliness that I just was like so in awe of and felt drawn to like try to aspire to be. A lot of my relationship with Bryn, I felt like was me like trying to like, like watching from watching her from afar, but with like very little conversation between us. Um, but one moment I remember on the train station after Hey Queen in Williamsburg, I had been go-go dancing that night and she came down the platform. It was like Bedford Avenue, whatever. She was so drunk. She was so drunk. And I was like, very happy to see her, but also um, I was like, are you all right? And she was like, Zachary, let me tell you, I have something to tell you. And I was like, what, Bryn? She was like, you have got a good face. <laughs> and with that face, you better use it before you lose it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yes, yes, uh-huh. It was very young. Um, and that was all. That was all that needed to be said. Of which then I asked, did, did she, did, could I ride the train with her home? Because she was incredibly drunk and she's like, no, 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 I'm totally fine. It's like, okay. Um, and I just sort of remember that moment being like another, a very direct, but another moment of like teaching and of like wisdom in her way of departing that to me. Um, hi, it's Katie again. So yeah, Bryn was good at pretty much everything she did, um, except for calling people back with any degree of regularity. Um, <laughs> and so there was a, th a thing for her in Philly where people just kind of talked about um, at the, the Trans Health Conference in June. And people talked about different things and, and just sort of what she meant to them. Um, and uh, I mentioned that, uh, that she and I had started writing this TV show together that was going to be for a web series, but then we were running short on time, so I didn't, I wasn't able to read an excerpt of it. But like, I was just so, I was so jealous of Bryn because she seemed to like just so effortlessly just create and write these like brilliant things. Like I would toil and come up with things that weren't like a fraction as good as what she did. And so she and I would sort of like take turns writing different scenes for the show. Um, mine for the most part were terrible and hers <laughs> were all really incredible. And this was just sort of the opening of the show. And it was um, autobiographical. It was, it was her and me, we were both single at the time and we just sort of went on 
a series of just like the worst dates in the world. <laughs> and like my favorite thing to do would just be to like talk shit with Bryn afterwards and just like compare like horror stories. And it was just so like it was worth the bad dates to be able to like, <laughs> laugh with her about it. Um, and so she, this was her writing about us as us, but in TV format, it's short, but I just wanted to read this. And it's, yeah, so it's, it's as if it's like a, like a, well, whatever. Okay, nighttime. A dingy, dimly lit karaoke bar. Tons of grubby looking queers are milling about being loud. Katie is on stage singing a terrible song in earnest. <laughs> Katie, and I'm not singing this. If it eases all her pain, let her go. Cut to Brim, sexting. The camera, <laughs> the camera zooms in on her phone. Some boy writes, I want to do you like you've never been done before. <laughs> Bryn texts back, oh yeah? The boy texts, I want your tits in my palms. <laughs> Bryn texts, hot. She rolls her eyes. <laughs> Katie, still singing. Let her walk right out on me, and if the sun comes up tomorrow, let her be. Oh, let her be. Um, as she's climbing off stage, two gender queers knock into her. Gender queer number one. <laughs> Neo-colonialist bullshit. It's unreal. Gender queer number two. I know Z is incapable of acknowledging the fact that Z only writes about power through a patriarchal lens. Oh. I still can't believe Z calls herself radical. Uh, try liberal, dude. <laughs> Katie stumbles. She is about a foot taller than anyone in the place. She stands back up, adjusts her dress, and makes her way back to Bryn, who is still sexting. Bryn texts, can you pick up some soy cheese on your way home? The boy texts back, I'll show you some soy cheese when I have you all to myself later. Katie sits next to Bryn, who clears a spot next to her on a couch. Bryn, that was really good. Katie, you think so? Bryn, yeah, I love that song. It doesn't age you at all. <laughs> Katie, what are you singing? The KJ then calls out Bryn's name. KJ, next up we have uh, Brian. Is there a Brian here? Bryn stands up and smooths down her skirt. Bryn, I'm here. She squeezes past the two gender queers who are still being obnoxious next to the stage. She climbs on the stage and her song begins. Brim, I never meant to cause you any sorrow. I never meant to cause you any pain. Hey, Katie watches her adoringly. Cut to interior day salon and it was another scene, mm. but I just wanted to share that. Mm. Uh, this is Rebecca. Um, I met Brim in 2000. 10 and I was trying to figure out how but then I just went to my email today and found out uh, that my roommate when I moved to town who is a dear friend and of many people here or at least they've had a one night stand with her um, introduced us because she thought we were going to be best friends uh, and I think we were very close for a while um, but I was close with Brynn for two years that were sort of relatively sober years of her life uh, and everyone's talking about, well, people are talking about things that Bryn didn't ever have full confidence in, 
um, and maybe she didn't have full confidence in this, but she seemed to have full confidence in her cooking abilities. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And <laughs> and so Bryn and I, uh, we had a pretty like long and deep correspondence that happened over those two years that was mostly about various heartbreaks in our life. Um, we were both trying to get over someone who had dumped us and, and, and we had seen other people since then, but we were still kind of messed up about it. Um, and probably more, more specific to our relationship, uh, we had a very deep relationship about Christ. Uh, she called me her sister in Christ. Uh, we celebrated holy days together. We did mass together a few times. Um, Bryn, yeah, Bryn had a long, <laughs> a long Christian life. <laughs> we were both pretty obsessed with goodness and sin, although we fell on opposite sides of whether sin was the best thing ever or the worst thing ever. Um, <laughs> none of our fights started that way, but we, we were in like pleasant disagreement about sin. Um, but, but everyone knows here that Bryn cooked and that she was an amazing cook and specifically good with pork apparently <laughs> um, but uh, but so Bryn and I had a series of, of, of holiday meals together um, and we did Christian holiday meals together we would labor over planning them for weeks and dividing up who was going to do what. Bryn was real particular about getting those hormone-free turkeys, um, which involved a lot of carting around of giant turkeys around Brooklyn. Uh, we would divide up the responsibilities. We would be very, very careful with who we were inviting. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and <laughs> Brain was actually very good and thoughtful about who was going to make other people feel comfortable. Um, and we had a pretty strict policy that nobody who had a home to go to that was going to possibly ditch us for their bio family on the day of was going to even be invited. Um, that if you had a bio family that you wanted to go to and you, or that you, that invited you and you you wrote them off, you were allowed to come to our, our meal, but that was it. Um, and uh, at, at some point I started working for a church, so I was busy all the time. Um, and Bryn took up a lot of the day of work, so we would prep together and then um, she would toil all night working alone and then I would swoop in after having done a service and pretend like I had cooked all the food and, <laughs> and entertain everyone and she called them her Mary and, our Mary and Martha meals um, because those are the figures in the, the Bible who, who have that particular experience. But the thing that reminds me, um, or the, the, one of the fondest moments I have of her is that after all of that planning every single time and a lot of quibbling back and forth. These were like hundred email long exchanges about which particular sweet potatoes we're gonna make um, and, and who is invited and who's not invited. On the last, the last day we would always have a handful of people who we had heard from that weren't doing that well or that like were just surprised in town or one of us had run into and was trying to flirt with and we'd be like oh by the way I added this person to the invitation and they're probably bringing some other person but that's fine right and um, 
And I think that's one of the first times that... And then Zachary came to one of those meals where... My first Easter brunch. (laughs) Where we um, explained Easter to Zachary, who before this reminded me that he already knew what Easter was, but we couldn't be stopped. We were going to explain it no matter what. I guess uh, this is AJ, uh, and I guess I have a story sort of in two parts. It's like I also, I guess I met Bryn in early 2011 through Rebecca, and um, she was always kind of like Rebecca's friend. She was like a casual acquaintance of mine. I liked her, like Rebecca, like Bryn's Pentecostalism was like more intelligible to me than like the tarot readings. I, I was really into her auto harp when we would play, like, you know, played on her, she had this people's hymnal that had these like, amazing shape note notations, and we played a lot of songs, all of like old, um, spiritual songs out of the book, and um, I'd never really considered myself close friends with Bryn until uh, Bryn was hospitalized at um, Interfaith in late 2012, um, and lots of other people were involved in this, and I just was I played one part in that whole, like, really horrible, just really catastrophically bad ordeal, um, where I sort of arrived in Medias Race, where, like, I, you know, heard from Rebecca, like, sort of third-hand that, like, Bryn was... Um, hospital and it kind of gradually became apparent that um, there was nobody else in the hospital with her. It was not because other people had not tried to go to the hospital to be with her, um, but I, I, I wasn't there. I, I think that a lot of folks, could, like she kind of yelled at a lot, a lot of people and kind of drove out a lot of folks who were trying to help her. And so I was like, well, I guess like I don't really know this person, but I guess I should go to the hospital and did. And um, I think that I was able to sort of succeed partly because she was, um, even though she was like pretty fucked up on drugs at that time, very happy to have a man arrive and like kind of save the day or whatever and be there. She was, uh, there were a lot, like I said, a lot of folks were trying to support her and I remember one other person and I, um, they didn't really want like non-family members to be visiting and so um, I had a couple, like my story was that I was the boyfriend, which I think she was, further delighted to hear um but so i was like i was the boyfriend and then our other friend was like well i guess i'll be your sister and then we had this like a needlessly ornate backstory about how she was the transnational adoptee that was going to come with me to the visiting room for whatever sets of reasons and so i spent a long time um in interfaith which is a really horrible experience and I, i guess like other people can speak to this but um in the process of negotiating with doctors there, they sort of, after she'd been there for several days, kind of gradually figured out that she was trans. Um, weird stuff started getting kind of circulated in the hallways and stuff, and doctors started asking if they could talk to her alone, and were kind of like, I don't know if that's a good idea. She kind of consented to it, and um, basically it became, sort of, they had, the doctors had been very adamant that Brynn needed to be um, committed to the psych ward, um, that it was like, on their end, it was strictly a liability issue. They were like, 100%, no way is she going home. Um, it's like a minimum one week commitment, she's going to the psych ward. Um, as this got complicated for them, as they sort of gradually realized she was trans, there was a moment where they were like, well, she can go to the men's facility, and everyone was like, no, this is clearly not happening. We were very fortunate to be both sort of savvy and had resources, and we're like, this is clear, like, that's illegal, you cannot do that in New York City, and um, they were like, okay, but we, the, in the hospital's view, they couldn't put her in a room with another woman uh, in the women's facility. Um, we were like, okay, give her her own room, like, figure out what, what you know, whatever you have to do. Um, Brynn did not, I can't imagine anybody would have wanted to in her position, and obviously did not want to go. Um, but 
like a lot of us were just concerned about her safety and the hospital was saying that it wasn't up for discussion anyways uh, anyway by the end of the day it became apparent that the hospital did not have a single room available in the women's facility and they were like okay we're going to supervise her for another 12 hours and get back to you um, the next day they were like yeah okay she can go um, and like I had to sign like a you know basically release thing for my you know falsified relationship with her or whatever and um, so that was like the time when like we clearly kind of graduated from being like kind of casual secondary acquaintances to having some more involved um, friendship and it was a remarkable time I think for me looking back on in that there were so many people who were dedicated to supporting her in that situation and I don't think she ever knew um, how, how the, this like huge world of people that was trying to support her through that time. Partly because in the institutions in which she was caught, like foreclosed the support that was trying to be provided to her, partly because she didn't, simply was not willing to recognize it. Um, but I think she, like, it, it was one of those incredibly complicated moments in which like institutions and interpersonal relationships were sort of just like colliding with each other. And I think she came, yeah, she just didn't know uh, yeah, she didn't know how many people were there for her, both in the hospital and beyond the hospital, um, after she got out. And, um, but a few uh, months before that, um, Rebecca and I got married. Um, it was for a set of complicated reasons, also having to do with the church, and we had not intended to get married originally, and we were, had a lot of reservations about the institution. Bryn, on the other hand, was delighted to fetishize the institution on our behalf, and was like really into it. Um, and so like Rebecca and I didn't really know much about what we were going to do for the ceremony, but did know that we had this one passage from Isaiah that we absolutely wanted to be in the service, and we also knew that we absolutely wanted Bryn to read it. Um, and so Bryn, who incidentally also made me very late for my own wedding because she could not get ready on time, I think there were dissatisfied parties around that also. Um, but after, after eventually everyone got to the church and we had, the ceremony was underway, um, and Bryn was going to read this passage from Isaiah, and I'll just read it now because it's, um, it's also, this is the passage from Isaiah that Rebecca and I both had engraved on our wedding rings. Um, it's something that we carry with us, and it's um, a moment uh, also from my time with Bryn that um, has in, also stayed with me over the last the last year. Uh, anyway, so the passage goes, uh, Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Um, I went to seminary and I think Bryn was highly disappointed in me because uh, I think she was hoping we were going to be able to like talk like deep Christian stuff. And um, I, sadly, I just went for Christian ethics, not for all the stuff that she knew. Um, but uh, we would often meet on the thing we did have in common, uh, which was writing. Um, kind of the last few times I got to hang out with Bryn was um, editing a piece that she wrote uh, for a collection. And she wrote this amazing short story um, about a, that starts off with a woman um, trying to get her medication from abroad and then takes you through a day in the life of this woman dealing with, uh, you know, 
being at the grocery store, trying to get her meds, uh, dealing with her boyfriend, trying to cook dinner, having daydreams about what could be, wondering about friendship and love, and it's a really beautiful story. And um, we met a few times to talk about it, and there was different layers that I didn't understand. Um, and she would explain them to me. And, uh, and one of her biggest influences in that story is a book called Testo Junkie by uh, Paul Perciato, which is about the kind of intersection of um, pornography and hormones and um, ethnography and trans culture all together. And I remember Bryn could riff off that book and most people couldn't even finish reading it. <laughs> so that's going back to the way that she was hyper-intelligent. Um, and often we would talk a lot about um, HIV and what it meant in you know post-2010 times. And um, she, besides doing the hussy, she also kept another Tumblr. And I can't remember the name of the Tumblr. What party? Party Bottom. Party Bottom. <laughs> Party bottom. The and sexy HIV positive. Yeah, blog. trans woman. Transgender blog, yeah. Yeah. And I still give that. There's um, one of the best pieces that I think has uh, existed out of Bryn's writing is a kind of advice that she gave someone who was newly diagnosed. Um, and that's where she came up with this idea of tiger blood. So, kind of this idea of reclaiming that. Um, living with HIV is all of these complicated realities, but also that you have something that bonds you with something bigger um, than you were before. And uh, still to this day, it's like a piece of writing that I, I share with people, uh, especially people that are newly diagnosed or people who are, who are AIDS phobic, uh, because it, it really changes people's minds. And the best thing that I love about it is that um, Brim wasn't nostalgic about HIV and she or about AIDS activism, and she was able to sometimes painfully and always lovingly call people out in that, sometimes to their face and sometimes behind their back. And uh, I'm, I, I miss her in many different ways, um, and I think in the last few months it's been hard because uh, I wouldn't see her very often, so now it's, about, it's been about seven months, so seven months would be usually how long I would go without seeing her, so now it's really dawning on me, but I, yeah, I'm gonna stop mid-sentence. Um, I remember when she was writing that story for Ted, and I think this speaks to kind of like larger things other people have said about her insecurities, but when she was writing that piece for Ted, she was really worried and would share with me that she was writing something that would be received as kind of tragedy porn. And I think that that was a lot of her early, you know, she worked so often through the pseudonym um, and through many different pseudonyms. Um, and, you know, I told, I've been telling people since her death who have been worried about various things becoming part of kind of the public record of her life because she was so deeply private um, that I think she was really moving towards um, a more um, a cohesive version of the events of her life or at least more public cohesion around the various narratives that she told um, in various settings, but um, she, was, she was really nervous to write that piece and have it be under her name, um, the one that she wrote uh, with Ted, uh, and was edited by Ted. Um, but then when it came out shortly thereafter, um, Doug, who uh, didn't, didn't know Bryn, wrote a review for Dan Fishback of the piece and sh and and got that it was inspired by Testo Junkie pulled in a lot of other um, theory that was it was in conversation with and when she read the review 
she was so relieved. And I think that that was a part of some of what she, towards the end of her life, was coming to the realization that if she spoke, would, that she could speak honestly about things that she was worried about being received the wrong way and that it could go well and people would still recognize her brilliance in those moments. Um, and I actually just last night uh, saw this quote that she had pulled from Samuel Delaney's Heavenly Breakfast, um, one of his memoirs. Um, and I think this speaks to some of her philosophy with her writing. Um, Our culture sees anyone at an economic, social, or psychological vortex as a figure of despair. Despair informs all social dealings with them. It is impossible to show this despair as part of society's own perspective unless you can convince people, not as society, but as individuals, to come to much, much closer. To come much, much closer. Society wastes so much ability to reason, so much ability to laugh. Before laughter and reason, disappear, despair vanishes. Um, so I think that that really, like the, the closeness and laughter and reason really resonates with Bryn's memoir work in that line. I'm glad that um, other bombs, other affiliates, and party brought up have been brought up today because uh, I truly believe that um, both of those um, projects, but in particular, Party Bottom, is just incredible <coughs> proof that she was literally crafting and creating and writing the trajectory and future of trans literature. She was doing it, she was doing the work and just taking it from out of nowhere and saying, in a way, creating the path for future writers. Um, and it, for me, I was incredibly saddened that, you know, before her passing, that she was writing such incredibly raw and important work. And it reminded me of what um, Sarah had uh, said today, that as realism being the radical trajectory of trans literature, and she can correct me if I got the quote wrong, but um, there is such a powerful realism to what Britain was doing in her uh, later works that um, really did, um, push and change the narrative of trans literature um, in ways that I think that we still will not be able to fully comprehend and realize years from now. And I'm glad that we were ta we talked about Party Bottom because in one of my favorite parts of Party, Party, Party Bottom um, is this post that she did that was, um, I, uh, I don't, I don't want to get the title wrong, but it basically was an outline of how to be uh, how to be a good roommate with someone mm -hmm. that is living with HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. And that fucking piece is one of the most important, it's in my opinion, I think it is one of the most important pieces of writing of um, HIV and AIDS activism art that has ever been written. Because it was so fucking honest and it was something that, as someone else has said today, she was a teacher. That is something that could have been taught in medical school, social school. Like it is an important document because it laid out in such honest, stark terms that people that are in medical schools don't even get. Like, like they don't. Like some of that stuff, like they're not even understanding because we know this because people um, on the margins who are trans and HIV positive obviously are not getting the care that they need. And Bryn saw that. And she wrote about it. And she said, "No, this is this is what." This is what dignity looks like. This is what care should look like. 
Um, and she and she just spelled it out. And so for me, that's one of my favorite parts about Parkrun is that blog post because it really is an important, that one in particular is an incredibly important um, document that should be studied by anyone that wants to go into um, public health and policy. They, they just have to read that, in my opinion. a question um, this is maybe for like Ted and Sarah but other people what was it like to edit Bryn's work I can't really remember I did um, I can talk about it in two ways so Riley did the, the line edits and did like the the copy edits and I think what was it to edit Bryn? It was to be in conversation with someone that was smarter than you about a topic that you both cared about. It was a lot about, uh, of course I can speak for it, but it was a lot about giving her confidence and letting her know, like, yeah, just write that, Bryn, just write that. Um, sometimes, it, the few times we met, it was a lot about, um, it felt to me that we were managing different anxieties. Um, so there was, um, I could tell that she wanted to do a good job. I could tell that she, it, I think there was a few times during the process where she was on the brink of um, talking herself out of it or, or going over too far. Uh, I've worked with her on other projects too. I invited her to um, be part of this thing called Last Address where she um, gave a kind of small presentation about an artist named Valerie um, who had done work at ABC No Rio and um, and even in the process around that, I mean, Britt and I share this thing where we can both get ahead of ourselves, and then we don't know what to do once we've get it, gotten ahead of ourselves. And and I, so part of my job as an editor was to help her uh, just get back to what the task was, and to help her find that joy in it. Um, and then I saw that again. Uh, she spoke at this at Gallery ninety four. Um, I put together a, a funny little panel. I had this daydream of, oh, how do I start? So, Lena Dunham's mom is a very famous artist named Laurie Simmons. And I had two daydreams about this panel I put together. One is getting visual aids tote bag on girls. And two is maybe Bryn being on girls. And so I thought, you know, I could bring Lena Dunham's mom, Laurie Simmons, who's an artist in her own right, and bring together, like the rest would just happen. And, it's, and that didn't happen, but what did happen at that event is that Jack Waters and Brain Kelly met. And actually that trajectory was probably way more powerful and way better for, for both of them. Um, and that's actually how Brain learned about Valerie. And, and I think then Brain could put herself in a lineage of um, women living with HIV that were artists. And we talked about, um, she was going to do a series that she her and everyone else who's very smart took visual aids to, takes visual aids to tasks about the lack of representation and she was like, where are the women on the site? And she wanted to do a series of blog posts about uh, women living with HIV that are artists and we talked, we looked at funding and I think that was one of those times where either got lost in all the other stuff that she was doing with her life or um, she just got ahead of herself and I didn't follow up. Um, 
Yeah, and then I guess the last thing I'd say about editing frames, like just to be in conversation, I wrote this, I thought I wrote this article about um, the way in which AIDS has become like a punchline in like the 21st century in sitcoms, and I wanted Brynn's opinion, so I sent her what I had, and then within five minutes she wrote back a response, but that response was just so eloquent and spot on and filled with all the good things that you need to make a good article. It had an example, it had some personal anecdote, um, and it like it didn't even be copy edited again. And so instead of uh, me writing an article and asking Bryn to look it over, we ended up crafting a conversation. Um, and kind of the, I don't know if I've shown this story before, I feel like I have, but one of the big mistakes that I made is I had this like overly long title um, about like, uh, yeah, I trying to explain what the article was about, and Bryn said it should have been um, HIV LOL. <laughs> and, and she's absolutely right. <laughs> Does that answer? I want to invite folks who haven't had a chance to speak to know that they, the table is theirs. I have a bunch of Brent stories. I wasn't even really sure where to start, so I, I guess I can talk about. Uh, first time I, I met Bryn, um, or maybe the first time I saw Bryn, which was in a photograph where she was wearing a, a costume of d a giant pink uterus with a big cartoon face on the front so you couldn't you know, see what she looked like or anything. Sort of like a Disneyland mascot, um, but like a Disneyland mascot who was advocating for reproductive rights <laughs> on, uh, on her college campus in Ohio. Um, it wasn't just maybe a week or two after that that I saw her face for the first time in a photograph. Um, she had black hair against her pale skin. She was like gothing it up a little bit and that was posted on a message board online where we met and used to hang out. And she had kind of instantly became a role model for me and a bunch of other queers and trans kids who were hanging out there. Uh, and everyone was kind of in love with her. She was a stunning sweetheart who was sort of bold enough to post picture of herself online in an era when that was slightly more unusual. Um, she was a public advocate, you know, who clearly had this razor-sharp intellect that she was sort of writing posts on her board and kind of also running things, smacking people down when necessary, with, you know, Nackrick saying the exact right thing with the right barb at the right time. Uh, and then it wasn't long after that that we actually got to meet in person. That was a little over a dozen years ago now. Um, I drove into Columbus ahead of a snowstorm on my way to go visit uh, a girlfriend in Chicago uh, and she was really on the top of my list of people who I'd never met in person who I wanted to hang out with. So I made a point of going through Columbus um, on the way from New York to Chicago. Uh, and we talked a lot online and it was funny um, meeting in person. Our genders were so different in some ways but we sort of reflected off of each other and we had when talking online and then in person too, and for years after that, and in some ways it almost felt sort of like we were making each other possible, kind of riffing off of each other. And later on, when she moved to New York, she referred to me sometimes as 
someone she wanted as a standby that like if she didn't have a date or a boyfriend to cook for, she would insist that I would have to come over so that she could cook for me instead. <laughs> um, but that first time we hung out in Ohio, I remember most that she, she made fun of me a lot. Uh, she made fun of my, my try-hard, like, adolescent mannerisms of the time. <laughs> and um, that was actually really good for me, because I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm overdoing things. And uh, <laughs> I complained to her about how I felt ugly, how I felt like I needed work done on my face, because I had what some communities of trans women were calling testosterone damage. And Brynn immediately said, Naomi Clark, if you ever use that term again, I will slap you silly. And I was so taken aback, not because I was afraid she would actually slap me, but because I was really just very used to trans people complaining casually about how we wish we looked more like cis people. And Bryn was the first person that I ever heard express the idea that maybe trans people don't always need to measure ourselves against cis people, maybe we don't need to wish we'd been born cis. Um, and it's the same kind of idea that I think animates her, her works like Tiger Blood. And I've carried that way of seeing and that way of looking in the mirror with me through every day of my life since then. Thanks. Um, I'm Chris. I've been mouth breathing for a while now. Drink some water. But, uh, yeah, my mind just went blank, but um, I was just gonna kind of riff off of that, the uh, like trans people comparing to cis people, like um, I, and I guess also talking about uh, how, how brilliant Bryn was, um, about five years after I met Bryn, um, you know, she encouraged me to uh, play music with, on, in a, she had started a group, uh, the Invert Family Sing Singers, which is the name that she came up with, which is really uh, brilliant. Um, and, uh, but the, um, the first, first rehearsal um, with, with uh, just our, our mutual friend um, and uh, our, our mutual friend Julian um, and Julian's partner at the time and uh, a friend uh, Julian's partner's uh, friend it's two two cis women and uh I you know talking to Bryn after the uh this rehearsal and and there's something coming up in other uh you know that that she didn't she really you know um Julie's partner at the time had this like I think the phrase she used was like sweet like angelic voice and uh how she, you know, what she was into about Invert Family Singers was singing, being surrounded by other, harmonizing with trans voices and not having this, like, so it was very, very jarring to have, you know, it was just basically like cis people, like, crashed this uh, rehearsal because um, 
you know, there was like this cis reference point now. And so she has to hear her voice against, you know, like the, you know, angelic, like cis woman or whatever. And, and uh, you know, that, that basically, um, I, I, I don't know, I'm not trying to, uh, I'm just saying that you, like it's hard, you can't get away from that, you know, it's like, she, she tried, you know, I know that, but it, you know, um, she would come to, we started a, a second, a band after the Inbert Family Singers, another band, and she would come to rehearsals and we were trying to encourage her to perf. We're trying to encourage her to perform with us, and uh, and uh, it, you know, it, it just it never happened because, and I think it was because um, well, I don't know, I don't know. I just, I, I mean, she performed lots of the times and stuff, but I think it was just kind of um, uh, it, it just like happenstance that like that uh that those negative feelings would kind of come back around just at those times that we tried to uh put something together or whatever and it wouldn't work out and uh and um yeah so but maybe thoughts for further um, further conversation for another time, or maybe just an image of Bryn. I want to say that we're in a room where there's four pictures of Bryn um, that Gaines brought, uh, one where she's holding baked lasagna, yeah, um, with kind of reddish hair in her kitchen, one where she has platinum blonde hair and she's wearing a white halter top. Is that outside of ABC number? Is that that? It's, uh, she's on our old room. And one of uh, Bryn and Gaines on a beach with uh, Bryn's hair being impossibly large. <laughs> Impossible. And then um, a stage photo taken by Sophie. By Sophie, where Bryn is um, in a, it, she's kind of like a, a pin up housewife in the 1950s. And I wonder if the, this idea of like snapshots want to kind of um, help us. Um, transition out of this space uh, if we want to like provide a snapshot of brain in our minds. Um, hi, it's Katie again. So this is not an image of Bryn, but it's an image of, or it's not an image, it's a pillow um, that she made that's really beautiful um, that she gave to me for Christmas. And as actually I think Sarah mentioned on Facebook, there was a comment because she posted a picture of it and I was talking to Gaines about it um, recently. Um, she gave it to me in April um, because, <laughs> as we all know, like Bryn liked to hibernate, and so um, I think it was ready at Christmas, but I wasn't able to sort of like track her down or see her until April. And um, I'm just gonna describe it. Um, it so she got really into quilting, and so it's a quilted pillow, and it has her favorite color was lavender, and there's like a lot of lavender, and it's floral, and it's yellow, and it's 
just really beautiful and she she made such beautiful things and something that I really like about like this pillow and what it represents is just that it's it's like truly incredible how she was like this sort of like sexy vixen type and just like this brilliant academic and just had this really dry cunning wit and then was also just like this like old lady who liked to like cook and bake and quilt things at home. Um, and there were just so many incredible parts of her and you know as I mentioned she just was so good at everything. I mean this is the type of, th how did she just make this? Like she just taught herself how to make this beautiful pillow. Um, and I just feel really fortunate that I have it and that, you know, I can sleep with it. Gina, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to talk about your nails today, which relate to a snapshot. It's Jean. Um, well, I was actually thinking about something which kind of relates to my nails, which are a drawing of um, Patty Bouvier, who's Marge Simpson's sister, not Selma. She's the one with like the helmet hair. And um, Bryn and Rebecca and Katie and Elizabeth and I all would hang out. It's funny that you brought up Lori Simmons and girls because we kind of like fashioned ourselves in this alterna girls kind of way. Um, and we kind of named ourselves after the women's bowling team on The Simpsons, the Homewreckers, because we liked to um, wreck homes. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I was also kind of thinking about how vulnerable Bryn was, and I was thinking about these pictures of her and the picture that Sophie took of this like 50s pinup thing, and I was thinking about being with her at Interfaith um, and how she was like not wearing any makeup and she was really embarrassed and upset that people were there, and the times when like her vulnerability made it impossible for her to be around people, and the times when I think we had really like good ways of thinking about gender together across our different genders, um, which I kind of shorthanded in this thing to her, which she really liked, which was femmes against femmes against carbohydrates, <laughs> or dinner party politics with the hussy circa 2007. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a lot of, uh, I don't know, complicated stuff around, around that and around kind of being seen. Um, I don't know. It's not much of, of anything, but yeah. I don't know. Um, Sarah, my one of my last visions of Bryn is you and her dancing um, outside of St. Mark's Church. St. Mark's Church, mm -hmm. and you had just given her a Christmas present. Beautiful, it was a collection of essays on AR AIDS America. I think she's wearing like a what color is this chair? I was there. She was wearing a red velvet, like maroon velvet, like dress and a big wrap, a, a big wrap thing. And um, I was like, Brandon, I haven't seen you in a couple of weeks, let's hang out. And she goes, Well, invite me to something. I'm like, I invite you to things all the time. And then she goes, no, you send me like group emails. <laughs> <laughs> like just flat all out. And I was like, yeah. But yeah, she was really fun that night, all dreaming.
stories about Christmas, telling stories to us about Christmas to your family. <laughs> and uh, she described them as John McCain Republicans. <laughs> it was really, it was, she was just like on fire. She was just like socially on fire. One of the things that, that Rin, she was, was in fact a teacher in a lot of capacities that she didn't recognize, and one of the things that she kind of got me doing was singing in public, which I never would have done before. Uh, when she was like, I was playing banjo with her, and she was like, we need to learn how to harmonize. And, um, I think everyone's heard her saying in like, writing, but another like, part of her um, very extensive skill set was like, Rin was actually a very good musician and was very savvy with music theory. Like, I, I, I was sort of had, had training growing up, and so I was like, oh, she kind of like, was moving much more faster through all this stuff than I was able to even. Um, and so she was like, I'm gonna teach you how to harmonize. Um, and my snapshot is like, when she was living in Grand Rapids Plaza, which had a piano, right piano, and she was, I would not say that she was sort of like patiently supportive while I learned, but she kind of like persevered. And I remember her banging on the keyboard and being like, why can't you hear what a third sounds like? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. And I was like, I can only sing this high. And she was basically like, you're full of shit. Like, this is like, this much higher. Uh, which is true, but I didn't um, but anyway, I have one of the things that I've learned from Brynn is what a third sounds like. <laughs> so, uh, I've got a, uh, I, mean, I was thinking of this earlier before you said the word snapshot, like, uh, I just wish I had, like, a video of this moment, um, that the, f the first time I ever saw Brynn before I met her, uh, was, um, at Camp Trans, um, there's, there, there, I think there's like a, maybe like a hut kind of a thing by like the entrance. Has anybody been there and remembers? But there's like a, you know, and people kind of hang out there, right? From the, you take like a left hand turn into the place and and her, her and Mike showed up, uh, you know, drove in in that black, was that, that black car was that? I think it was black or brown. Was it like Bryn's car or Mike's car? But um, uh, and and like she she got out and just like let out this like she just I don't know like just this like whooping like holler like super loud and and I just saw them and I was like this was kind of uh, you know this is before like the word the word uh sis or whatever but i i just was like who's this like sh like who's this like you know uh this like straight couple that's like really into like camp trans <laughs> uh, my name is max and i have been thinking about um Brin's wit and love of language, and I always found such delight in that, and I think that being with her in person always, it's like, whether socially she was on fire, like Diana said earlier, but it, it didn't matter because I think in her writing, but also just verbally, she could envision another world, which I think she does in that story that you edited, while also being rooted so firmly in a real world. Um, so we could always, you could have both at once, 
Um, and I, I just remembered. Um,